Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's Thursday, September 1st. I am Hayabat Niji. And this week, our special topic episode will introduce our Executive Director for Olefins Europe and Middle East, Matthew Tolkien, who will be discussing the energy crisis in Europe. Your hosts today are Pablo Giorgi and Luca Powell. Hi, my name is Luca Powell, your host for today. I'm joined by Matthew Tolkien, Executive Director for Olefins EMEA at Chemical Market Analytics. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thank you, Luca. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. So before we get into our conversation, can you tell us about your background? What do you do when you are not with Chemical Market Analytics? So my background is is really uh, living the, the life of a consultant. So I started with what was uh, Chemical Market um, associates uh, back in the, the late 90s and have been covering various markets, mainly focused around the olefin sector, a lot of time in C4s, and then uh, since uh, 2010, been uh, focusing on ethylene and propylene. Uh, geographically, uh, more focus on Europe and Middle East, uh, but obviously we all we all sit in global markets, so have a, a pretty big interest in the, in the global picture as well. Um, so what do I do when I'm not uh, working? Well, I'm, I'm always working. I'm, I have three little girls at home, so uh, there's no rest when uh, when the day job finishes. I'm into the, uh, the evening job and uh, that's keeping me uh, pretty busy. Um, we have uh, uh, quite a bit of travel as a family, so that's, uh, that we enjoy. And then, uh, yeah, doing stuff with the kids. I'm trying to get them to, uh, to all be cyclists like myself. Uh, so that's uh, that's taking up some time. Uh, a few tumbles and falls and shouting and crying, but uh, this is uh, this is the joy of, uh, of being a parent, look, looking after little kids. So, Matthew, you're based in Germany, right? I hear the beer is good there. Yeah, I'm based in Germany. My background is, is uh, from the UK, but I uh, moved here uh, over, over 10 years ago. And the, the beer is pretty good here, that's right. Uh, I, I come from the UK, so I'm I'm used to slightly warm and, and flat beer, uh, which may be, uh, may be good in the world we live in. I, th- I hear there's uh, some issues with carbon dioxide availability in Europe, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the, the beer is pretty good here in Germany, that's for sure. Okay, so let's frame the issue. The gas situation is all over the place in Europe at the moment, so I want to unpack how did we get here. Firstly, what are some of the drivers of the natural gas market? Why is Germany in trouble? And are there any alternatives to Russian gas supply? And if so, what do we expect from demand? So, uh, so how long do we have? Uh, this is uh, <laughs> a, a lot to unpack, but uh, let, let's try and sort of unravel things a little bit. Um, I mean, natural gas is really uh, a very simple, relatively clean energy source. And it's it's really dominating uh, the European uh, domestic energy consumption along with electricity. So we see uh, a lot of gas demand into the um, private sector for for home heating, water heating in homes, um, as well as demand into industrial applications for energy, uh, for power generation. Uh, The chemicals industry, um, to some extent, reliant on gas as everybody else, uh, relatively was a relatively low cost and abundant uh, source of energy. Uh, But in some cases in Europe, we do see natural gas acting as a sort of feedstock into chemical processes. Um, And there we see uh, a sort of more critical reliance on on natural gas. There's not really alternatives. 
Um, I think about uh, the current situation, you know, it's really, you, you have to roll back a, a bit over a year. Um, I mean, you could roll back uh, several years and, and say Russia's been building up to, to this uh, position where, where Europe is effectively um, tied very, very closely to Russian hydrocarbons, particularly to gas. And, you know, the, the military buildup on the Ukrainian border, which sort of got started last summer, and then escalated through the winter until the invasion uh, late February. Um, during this whole period last winter, we saw Russia uh, gradually squeezing gas supply, reducing availability of gas, um, making a lot of threatening noises uh, about gas availability. And we saw the market start to respond. I mean, last December, we saw prices um, hitting a peak um, well above any historical norm. And uh, that, that's really continued following the invasion. And now we see Russia basically uh, moving towards turning the gas off. The markets have, I think, pretty much assumed there will be uh, very little or no Russian gas uh, during the winter. But different countries in Europe have you know, different exposures. There is a gas grid. So we're seeing um, gas pricing across Europe uh, in trouble, quite extreme pricing dynamics over the last couple of weeks. Uh, tied into the sort of core Central European, Germany, the Netherlands, you could include in that, but down into Austria and to the east towards Poland. You know, prices there are all very closely linked together. We do see a little bit of a gap between uh, like the UK, French uh, pricing and, and what's happening a little bit to the east. So um, Germany is one of the, the countries which has been most uh, wholly committed to Russian gas supply. Roughly half of German gas uh, has historically been sourced from Russia. And the the challenge for Germany is that it's reliant on gas pipeline connections with its neighbours. Uh, it has no alternative sources of gas. It can't import LNG. And because it's such a big gas user, I mean, you look at other countries, they have similar or even greater exposure than Germany, but they're not as significant consumers. And this leaves Germany very, very exposed uh, to, to gas supply from Russia. And if gas supply is turned off, it is very difficult to see how Germany is going to struggle through that. Certainly, are going to be very significant impacts and enforced reductions in, in German consumption for, for gas. And you know, this is already uh, being reflected in the moves that you know, Germany as a, you know, the, the, the general consumer is trying to reduce their use of gas. And industrial users are making very, very uh, significant moves to try and be linked to gas if possible. Um, the alternatives are really limited. The LNG market globally would be big enough to fill the gap, but LNG demand isn't just about Europe. You know, we see that demand elsewhere. So those contracts in place and the infrastructure in Europe to, to regasify the gas to take it from uh, sort of minus 180, 90 degrees Celsius and, and bring it back to a, a sort of usable temperature just don't exist. There are a lot of uh, import locations in the UK, in Spain, in Italy, uh, I think in Belgium and, and the Netherlands as well, but we don't have enough capacity as a uh, continent to replace Russian gas. So, you know, the exposure to Russian gas is large and the impact of Russian gas being cut off, which is pretty much where we are now, uh, is, is going to be very significant.
So Matthew, it seems like it's a really troublesome picture. Um, to help our listeners understand, um, you know, the impacts on the petrochemical industry, can you um, talk a little bit about how much of the capacity is concentrated in Germany um, of olefins, ethylene and propylene, and some of the derivatives? Yeah, so it's it's quite varied, and we did some analysis just recently looking at detail, not just on where the capacity is based, um, but where different processes and technologies sit. And if you look at the, the olefins industry, you know, as a, as a commentator on the olefins market, I'm not really that concerned about steam crackers. Um, you know, the average steam cracker in Europe actually is a, a net gas producer. Um, there are a number of crackers, you know, least less efficient crackers, which are net gas consumers. So they do face challenges. But, you know, within a steam cracker, particularly liquids crackers, you have a lot of tools to redirect streams, the ethane recycle streams typically, which are, are fed into furnaces can be redirected. Uh, not into the, the feedstock section, but into the fuel section of furnaces. Uh, boiler operations can be moved away from natural gas. So there's a lot of levers that are, are being pulled to adjust uh, steam cracker exposure. Um, where we do see more of a, a sort of one-way route from an energy perspective is into the derivative uh, sectors. There isn't really alternatives from uh, natural gas or electricity for PVC production, for propylene oxide production. Uh, and when you even look at the main polymers, polyethylene, polypropylene, there is still an exposure to electricity consumption and that invariably is tied into natural gas pricing. So I would say a lot of the concern sits on the availability of um, elect affordable electricity for derivatives and for some uh, natural gas uh, pricing. For the steam crackers themselves, a little bit less of an issue. There are definitely, you know, a number of crackers which are, are exposed, but not uh, the majority. I would say if you look at the the sort of spread, you know, Germany is the big hub, uh, you know, over 20-25% within a lot of spaces uh, that production is based in Germany. But the, the real critical issue for Europe is that the gas flow, unless we see a kind of nationalization of gas systems and effectively these pipelines across borders being closed down, we're going to see this impact uh, hitting everybody. And when you look at the olefins sector, um, the rationing that's been discussed, so Germany has already put in place uh, sort of phases of rationing. Um, and I think we're already sort of moving into to some of those phases. There's really a lot of pressure for for industrial users to reduce gas consumption, and they may well be uh, curtailed. And there's some natural curtailing happening already because the gas price is so high. Just to put this in context, um, TTF, which is the sort of main reference, uh, it's a Dutch reference, but it's very, very comparable to pricing for gas in Germany or in Austria or in Central Europe. That's been trading above 300 euros per megawatt hours. Um, just to to give you a, a context for our American listeners, that's um, you know pretty much sitting or not quite sitting at a hundred dollars a million BTU. So you know the kind of pricing dynamics that you see in terms of the gas markets are unprecedented, and with this kind of pricing level, you're really 
looking at every single possible opportunity to push gas back into the gas network and to use LPG or liquid fuels or, or any other products uh, that, that have energy that have a kind of calorific value, if you like. So, so there's really a lot of pressure on the industry from an economic perspective to, to move. And you know, just to put this into context, if you're looking at a steam cracker operator, a naphtha-based steam cracker, and you had the capability, they don't, but if you had the capability to switch from natural gas as your furnace feed to LPG or to fuel oil, you're looking at you know huge, huge savings, way in excess of a thousand euros a ton saving and you know this is kind of numbers where people start looking at significant changes in operations even if they're just very short term uh, you could be looking at paybacks of, of weeks and months not even years for, for some of the changes to to shift your energy position so so producers in europe are very very busy trying to figure out what they can do and how they can secure themselves um, you know from a Steam cracker operators perspective, that's where we see most of the potential changes. For the derivatives, it's really just a case of bearing what you can. And at points, um, you're now starting to see some you know, extreme pricing dynamics uh, where uh, I think you know one caustic soda producer is looking at increasing the price by 200% from one month to the next. So, so these kind of dynamics um, are, are going to really be very difficult for the downstream industries to, to deal with it. Uh, but you know, from a chemicals perspective, I would say the pressure point in the oil fins industry sits really with the derivatives. So the key derivatives that are big energy consumers, um, acrylonitrile through ammonia as one of the feedstocks, um, the, the poly Polyethylene polypropylene uh, production processes are much less energy efficient, so we're not so concerned about those. But you look at oxo alcohols, um, typically natural gas as a precursor into the, the syngas process. Some players have a little bit of flexibility to use other feeds, and so they're more protected, but the base load of production is, is from natural gas. Uh, propylene oxide, uh, the, the traditional epichlorohydrin route and also the direct oxidation routes, very big energy consumers, um, and so quite exposed to, to higher pricing. The co-product routes, so POTBA and POSM, not as exposed. Uh, and then of course, the big electricity consumption that goes into the caustic soda and chlorine production, and that feeds through into PVC. So PVC also um, at uh, you know, significant exposure to high gas and high electricity pricing. So, Matthew, you mentioned a little bit um, the potential for using other fuels in the furnaces in steam crackers. Um, other than that, do you expect other um, producers to, you know, have an incentive to find some alternatives to the use of natural gas um, or even for um, electricity production, um, you know, in, in power plants? Or do you see the potential for gas prices easing? How do you see, um, you know, those high prices incentivating companies and market participants finding some other alternative? Yeah, so I, there's there's an adage in the oil industry that, that says the solution for a hundred dollar crude oil is is a hundred dollar crude oil. The, 
the reaction in terms of supply, the reaction in terms of demand uh, will bring the market back into balance. And, you know, I think in the environment that we're at in Europe, in natural gas, you know, the the impact, the loss uh, that we see, you know, it it is comparable to the world losing Saudi and Russian oil. This would be the same kind of impact where we effectively move into a period of severe demand destruction to try and get the market to rebalance. Um, I would say that the the current gas uh, pricing is one where the supply picture is, I think, pretty well understood. There will be some additional supply coming from LNG. Um, we're seeing you know, the loading of LNG into Europe is, is at a very high level. Germany is going to build some floating import capability. That will be ready already this year. And we're going to see some more structural moves towards LNG import capability. But this isn't really going to solve uh, the the 22-23 winter issue, which is we need gas in storage now. Uh, most countries are actually in line or ahead of their requirements, and they're working really, really hard to meet uh, the, the sort of government uh, targets of how much gas uh, storage, how full full the, the gas storage capacity will be uh, by the end of October. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why the gas price is quite so high at the moment. Is there is a a push to try and fill up storage as well as the the ongoing usage of gas and you know this is uh, really pushing pricing levels to to an extreme but we've only had these kind of gas prices uh, as high as we see right now in august i mean in july they were not as high and if you roll back uh, even through last winter they weren't as high but you now move into an environment where expectation through the coming winter is that we're going to be sitting in this you know, $50 a, a million BTU plus gas environment for several months. And I'm, I'm sure if you push that to you know, the US uh, Gulf Coast industry and said, this is, this is the gas price you're going to have to deal with, what are you going to do about it? There would be huge changes, not necessarily um, significant energy savings. They take more time, but you can look at changing your fuel mix. And so I think that the incentive to move to away from natural gas, uh, you know, if, if you compare you know, the pricing dynamics, liquid fuels are sitting in the uh, you know, $10, $15 a million BTU range. Natural gas is $100 a million BTU. There's a huge amount of money sitting on the table for anybody who can make those, those shifts. Now, if you look at power generation, it is not that straightforward to make a shift on power plants to get the volume of, en- of energy into those systems. But if you look at the refining industry, you look at the PECM industry, where there is a mix of natural gas and various different liquid feeds coming in, the shift of you know, feeds into boilers, those probably already are being made, uh, the, the potential, potential shift um, to actually look at uh, not necessarily the feedstock side of, of the, the supply, but the, the energy supply that comes into the chemical industry, you know, those are ripe for change, if you like. That the incentive to make those moves is very, very high. And you know, even within the cracker, you produce a series of products. Um, fuel gas is one of those. Hydrogen is another product. Uh, you also produce fuel oils. Along with ethylene, you produce a lot of ethane. Traditionally, that ethane is just simply recycled cracked as a feedstock. Uh, but there's quite a significant volume and if that is used 
as a furnace fuel or pushed back onto the power uh, grid, you're looking at you know, really, really large numbers in terms of incentivization to do that. Um, probably even now to the point where for small gains of efficiency and small gains of you know, energy shift away from natural gas towards liquid fuels, you could bring, you could justify bringing your cracker offline. And you know, these are not cheap units to bring offline, but you know, we really are in an environment where uh, the, the cost incentive is is huge. I mean, it's it's unprecedented, I, I would say, within the energy industry to see this level of, of cost and, and rationale for, for reducing cost. And, and that's, you know, that's going to help a little bit. If you look at industrial usage of gas, it is significant. But the real key uh, driver is going to be pushing uh, your consumer, you know, that makes up a, a big proportion of gas usage away from natural gas and just simply to use less energy. Um, I'm already trying to get my my kids to have quicker showers and turn the temperature down. And you know, ultimately, if, if, if there's enough effort, people don't put their uh, heating up during the winter as high, maybe cut the temperature by you know, a couple of, couple of degrees Celsius, this is gonna really quickly start to add up to very significant demand reductions. And I think that you know, a combination of these factors uh, will will be necessary to to get uh, the, the the European continent through the winter, um, and you know ultimately the the challenge is going to be how do you ensure that those who um, can't necessarily afford to pay for these gas bills uh, are going to be able to manage. But I think with a enough uh, demand correction, this winter will be solved. And as we as we look at uh, you know the forward winter. I think we're going to see a a less stressed position because there will be more energy available, and you know the the reality is that the European industry is expecting Russia to basically be frozen out of the market. So even if Russian gas is available, um, there's going to be alternatives that are, are being put in place to to effectively try and ensure that Russia never again has the same position where they can blackmail uh, the, the European. Uh, economies. So to hit you with another broad ranging question, um, let's talk about some of the European competitiveness. Where do you think most of the impact will be felt and how are market replayers responding to this? Do we expect import opportunities to increase here? Yeah, so I think in the orphan space, you know, if you work through some of the changes that probably are going to happen, um, you, you may well end up in an environment where you know, the liquids cracking uh, position in Europe, uh, because it's a net, on average, is a net gas producer that does compensate for the energy consumption into the, the sort of easy derivatives, polyethylene, polypropylene, where you have a much lower energy consumption. And, and so I think actually the, the potential is that it's going to become more and more difficult for importers to compete um, for a big chunk of the European market. For sure, there will be producers where their, their cost structure, their efficiency is low, and they're going to struggle to keep operating. But once you move into these you know, sort of net gas positive and, and more and more producers will be working as hard as they can to get into that position, um, it's going to actually become more challenging for ethane-based cracker operations outside of Europe to compete uh, in Europe, because the consequence of high European gas prices 
is very elevated demand for LNG. And that's, we're already seeing an impact on the US markets where gas prices in the US are being supported by what's happening in Europe. And this is pushing US costs up. So I, I think the reality is, it doesn't say, you know, the European industry is going to stop operating. There are definitely derivative sectors. So if you look at uh, propylene oxide, PVC, uh, oxoalcohols, these derivative sectors are definitely at risk uh, from a European perspective uh, from imports. Uh, and then the question will be whether those imports make sense from the US markets or from Asian markets, which are seeing you know, different cost dynamics and of a much weaker uh, position. So I think it's it's not a simple solution. There is definitely derivative sectors and other parts of the industry. If you look at ammonia production, if you look at some of the, the metals production where big energy requirements are seen, those will clearly struggle in the current environment. We're seeing a lot of assets being idled um, and turned off. But for the oil fins industry, uh, it's a more complex picture, and it's not one where there's a simple solution. Even if you look at, uh, there's an ethane cracker in the north of the UK, which is running off North Sea gas, and ethane as a byproduct of that gas production is, is a feedstock. You know, traditionally, you look at that ethane valuation against fuel value plus some extraction fee. Well, the reality is, that cracker shouldn't be running, that they should be selling all the ethane into the gas system. But the, the, the truth is, if you do that, you can't actually run the gas production because you, you have too hot a gas, that the energy content is too high. So there's a, a need to actually pull that ethane out to ensure you can produce uh, the gas from the gas system. So even where you see these specific situations where probably you know, the economics on that plant, based on whatever contracts are in place, don't look at all attractive, they're still going to be run because the, the consequence of turning them off is too severe. So, so we're seeing, you know, limited risk of uh, impact on European oil fins production, uh, but we do see um, some of the derivative sectors and that will have a knock-on impact on ethylene and propylene demand, uh, really struggling in the current environment. And you know that's probably going to uh, stay as bad, if not get worse, as we move through uh, the winter. So, Matthew, interesting, uh, you mentioned the operation of the crackers, and um, you had mentioned before, you know, all the different tweaks that operators can do in the severity they're cracking the feedstock and so many other little things that can be um, adjusted. I mean, are crackers running at this point to make gas, or is that why we're seeing cheap propylene flowing, flowing on this side in the US? Well, I think the if you look at the, the numbers in, in August, what you'd find is that actually a steam cracker has a higher revenue stream, if you like, from gas production uh, than they do from ethylene or, or propylene production. So, you know, we're in a very bizarre environment, you know, particularly if you look at, uh, you know, a propane cracker where you get a particularly high yield of, of gas. But the reality is to run that cracker, you need to feed a big chunk of that gas back into, into the furnace system. So until crackers have, you know, effectively regressed 20 years and, and undone the, the shift away from fuel oil as a, as a furnace feed uh, towards uh, natural gas, 
until that's reversed, you're not really going to see the the sort of extreme where you know crackers are being totally optimized for fuel, gas, and hydrogen production. But to be sure, when you look at you know cracker LP systems, you know there is you know a very very strong weighting towards pushing uh, gas output fuel gas hydrogen production output as high as possible to run as, as severe as you can and you know this is you're still running for ethylene because ethylene so far i haven't picked up of any, anyone using ethylene as a fuel um, doesn't burn particularly nicely uh, but the, the reality is that you know, the, the ethylene market the derivative sectors with the exception of pvc are less energy intensive than for propylene and therefore we've seen you know, a bigger impact on propylenes, whether that's oxos or PO, and to some extent polypropylene linked into the challenges for the automotive sector and consumer goods. So propylene is seeing a bigger demand challenge than ethylene, and this is really pushing uh, the propylene markets to, to such length and where it makes sense to, to displace US exports of propylene with, with European volumes into, into Mexico and, and Colombia. And, you know, if things get really bad, then you might even see European products coming into the U.S. Uh, market. You know, so there, there really is uh, very uh, little uh, signs of relief for, for propylene sellers in Europe. And so we're seeing these, uh, these you know, extremely low spot valuations. As you implied before, Matthew, we could talk about this all day. It's clearly a very multifaceted issue. But thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It has been a pleasure to have you on. It's been uh, great to, to chat, Pablo and, and Luca. Thank you for your time and uh, this opportunity. And uh, we're, we're we're trying to keep on top of what's happening. So I, uh, I'm sure I'm going to be dragged back for another another discussion on this as the, as the autumn and fall and, uh, and winter progress. Thank you, Matthew. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send us an email. Until next time.